Most people probably wouldn't think to set a network sitcom in Montgomery, Alabama, particularly during the 1960s. That's an era that's much more commonly a setting for documentary or dramatic films about the civil rights movement, depicting these epic clashes between Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Governor George Wallace. Those are important stories. But there are other stories in Montgomery, Alabama, too. What was life like for the families that didn't make it to the tech? What happens when all of the national reporters and the TV cameras go away and people in the South just have to live? That's one of the most interesting things about the new reimagining of the Wonder Years that's airing on ABC this fall. You probably remember the original series. That Peabody-winning TV show ran from 1988 to 1993, and reruns have been in syndication pretty much ever since. It's the story of Kevin Arnold coming of age in suburban America in the late 1960s and early 1970s. And it confronted heavy issues like the war in Vietnam and a changing American culture, while also staying rooted in the comedy and coming of age struggles of an American teenager. This new series takes on a similar challenge, but they do it from a different perspective. That of a middle-class black family growing up in the deep south. It's filled with that same humor and heartwarming moments that people love from the original series, but it's also an examining of America from a lens that doesn't always show up on network TV. Today on The Reckon Interview, we're talking with Saladin K. Patterson, writer and executive producer of the newly reimagined Wonder Years. Saladin grew up in Montgomery, Alabama in the 1970s and 80s, so many of the details that make their way into this TV series are based on real experiences or stories that were handed down in his family. Growing up in Montgomery, Saladin went to MIT to study engineering before making a mid-career transition to writing for television. Since then, he's worked on some of the biggest series on TV, including Frasier, The Big Bang Theory, Psych, The Birdie Mac Show, and Dave. Today, we'll discuss the decision to reboot The Wonder Years in Alabama in 1968, why stories like this need to be told, his personal connections to the material, and what it was like to work with the original Kevin Arnold himself, Fred Sapp, to bring this story to life. So lend me your ears as we sit down for another episode of The Reckon Interview. Saladin K. Patterson, welcome to The Reckon Interview. Thank you. It's good to be here. Your new show, uh, A Reimagining of the Wonder Years, is now out. When the original Wonder Years debuted in 1988, it was kind of looking back 20 years in the past. The new version is looking back on that same era, but now that's, you know, 50, 60 years in the past. What drove the decision to set the series in that same period, time period, rather than looking back at like 1998? A couple of things, you know, Lee Daniels, the producer who I had the pleasure of working with, years ago, he acquired the, the rights to the one the years title to that IP because he specifically wanted to look at the experiences of a black middle class family during the late 60s because he um, accurately recognized that we haven't really seen that perspective before, not from the black middle class. You know, usually stories about the black experience in the late 60s focus more on the struggle. Rightfully so, because that, that is a very important part of our past and present. As a creator, you always want to take something people are familiar with or think they're familiar with and show them a new perspective on it, right? And so he thought that, that a good way to do that would be the Black middle class perspective during that time. When they approached me, when they, they meaning Lee Daniels Company and, and, and 20th TV, approached me to come up with a take on it, part one of the things we talked about was, okay, well, do we keep that original setting? And, and I actually, my first inclination was, was the same as many other people. Well. You know, especially if I'm going to be the one writing it since I came of age in the 80s, you know, late 70s, 80s, should I base it on that? And Lee's like, well, we have an opportunity to say something relevant to today by looking at the late 60s because of how similar 
things that we are dealing with in society now are to what was going on in the country then. I thought they were right. And that, that helped me wrap my head around what my take on this reimagining would be, because I was like, well, if that's the case, then my mom and dad, who were in Alabama during that time, have a very unique perspective because of you know, who they were as individuals. My dad and his you know, involvement in the music scene that spawned the groups like the Commodores, missed him, but you know, spawned, spawned them. And my mom being a woman who in the late 60s, you know, that, that, during that time period, you know, like graduated top of her class, went off to Michigan to get a master's in a year, came back to Alabama and quickly realized that the environment wasn't necessarily ready for a black woman who had achieved what she had achieved. And so she had to figure out how to navigate those challenges, you know. And then just my, my family's experiences during that time, I thought would lend themselves to a very specific, interesting point of view. And so that helped me embrace, okay, now I can see and wrap my head around what this reimagining can be and why I do it now and why I said it then. And plus, you know, there's the observation that other people have made as well that I agree with. You know, the original one of the years looked back 20 years. If we did that now, we'd be looking back to 2001. And that just feels, doesn't feel like it's long enough ago. It doesn't feel like what looking back from 88 to 68 felt like then in terms of generational changes. And, and I know nothing's new under the sun. Things have certainly changed in the last 20 years. But in terms of being able to comment on it and show something with a sense of nostalgia for a time, you know, for a bygone period, but also which is very important to us to, to be able to look back and learn from a period. It felt like the late 60s still contributed or, or lent itself more to achieving that goal than just looking back to 2001 would have. I mean, I could have talked about how big, you know, iPods were then or something like that, you know. And I mean, with the exception of 9-11, clearly that would have been something that, but, but we, we, we reflect on 9-11 a lot, as we should. That wouldn't have been necessarily new either. So it just felt like there was rich ground to mine from keeping it in the 60s because it was just uncanny, the parallels between then and now. And, and mind you, we we developed this in 2019. So that was even before the summer of 2020 after the George Floyd incident, you know, the summer of racial awakening, if you want to call it that. This even predated that. So when, when those events started happening, it, it just reinforced more to us the similarities between of what we were trying to show our family experience and what it, and what families were experiencing present day. Well, and it does kind of create almost like a Rashomon type effect when you lay it next to the uh, other Wonder Year series, where you're seeing the same time period through, you know, a middle class white family's eyes and a middle class black family's eyes. You grew up in Montgomery. Was it your decision to to set the show there, or was that something that Lee Daniels had envisioned? That was my decision. Lee has been the ultimate supportive, creative partner. You know, from day one, he says, Saladin, I want you to make this yours because I know that by making it yours, you're going you're gonna to make it great because that's how you tap into whatever your creative inspiration is. So, you know, instead of Montgomery, because that's where I, I grew up, you know, I was born in Tuskegee, but I, I grew up in Montgomery. The, the characters the, are loosely based on my, my, my family members. Um, you know, it's, it's like an amalgam of people, though, you know, loosely based on my mom and dad, but, you know, the sister and brother based on my aunts and uncles because I, I grew up an only child. You know, the people that populate the world are mixtures of both kids and adults that I knew. But um, the, the, the specific lens of the storytelling um, is something that certainly comes from my personal experience. And you also 
get a lot of the, you know, the individual details and specifics uh, to Montgomery, you know, shopping at Parisians, kids are attending a school named after Jefferson Davis. What did you do to make sure you were getting those details right? Because you did grow up, I guess, about a decade later. You grew up in the 70s and 80s in Montgomery. I mean, <laughs> schools there are still named after uh, Confederate generals. But, you know, what, what, was, what did you do in order to, to weave some of that in? Gotcha. You know, some of it, I always start, you know, from, from a base, from a point of truth and, and just real experience. So for the Dean character, since I'm tapping so much into my own adolescent coming of age, age experiences, you know, many of which are, are, are the same as where your adolescent and coming of age experiences were, you know, the first, first crushes, you know, um, friendships, things like that. I started there. And then when I wanted to lean into the specificity of the time, I just kind of, you know, like you'll see in early versions of scripts, I'll write in what I would have known when I was 12, but then, you know, have a marker by it and just say, okay, I need to replace this with what Dean would have known in 68 when he was 12, you know, that's analogous. So I just start with the area of truth and then figure out, okay, how would that truth apply to him? You know, um, Parisians was still around in the 60s, so, I was, so, so that was one that, that you know, that, that, that still worked, you know, and like, like you said, the... I mean, JD obviously, obviously in real life is a high school, but I couldn't, I had to make it a junior high for our kids. Other things was based on my family's experiences or stories that they were telling me as well about, you know, where did you guys go? What did you guys do? Like, I would say when, when the attitude is, when I was 12, I did this. What was your version of that? So that I, I benefit both from the, from the experience, but also the specificity comes from, from the factual, you know, data from them. And then, you know, I'll be honest, sometimes, you know, a little Google search never hurt anybody. So, you know, <laughs> I, have that, I have that too, you know, in um, Arsenal as well. Well, and it's interesting because, you know, the time period when the show starts is sort of the time period when we stop really seeing the newsreel footage and the TV footage from Alabama in the 1960s. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to give away too much of the pilot, but it is, the show takes place after Martin Luther King has has come and gone from Alabama. And so, you know, it is that time period where, I mean, I guess, frankly, schools in Montgomery and Birmingham and Tuscaloosa and places like that got as integrated as they would ever get before white flight started really accelerating and or you started seeing the rise of all these segregation academies and things like that. What lessons do you hope the audience takes away from that time period? Because, you know, you have white students and black students interacting and playing baseball games together and things like that. I don't necessarily want to say it's a, it's a more hopeful period than today, but it, it, it certainly predated the resegregation that we've seen in the, in the last 10, 15, 20 years in Alabama. I think first and foremost, I kind of want to show how the people, both black and white, adjusted to what would have been relatively new at that time. Okay? I think there's value in representing that in a in a true, accurate, real way. Because you know, ironically enough, man, I do think a lot of the issues we still have now with the racial divide—not just racial divide, you know, gender divide, sexuality issues—you know, the the, the uh, divide there—I still think it boils down to not having real one-on-one personal experiences with people that are different. Okay, not as stark as it would have been then when it was the first time you would be in the classroom with someone of a different race. We don't, it's not a start there, but as you mentioned, though, we still self-segregate these days a lot, you know, and, and social media, for as great as it is, man, it has allowed us to segregate ourselves 
in our own echo chambers even more. And then we, we're just reinforcing those same pre, you know, preconceived notions and assumptions about people that are different than us. So, you know, if, if, if there's a way to show, like in a real way, how uncomfortable that was then, because it was uncomfortable, but how in spite of that, there was value to pushing through that discomfort for some sort of commonality, I think we can still we can still apply that now because like at the end of the day, it, you know, as much information as we have and as much access as we have to people, we still separate ourselves out, you know, and we still it's it's, it's still so much easier to not like someone or disagree with someone because you've never really known someone with that point of view, you know. And so again, it's just an opportunity to to you know have an audience see something that hopefully they can relate to and apply to their own lives. Coming up after the break, more from Saladin K. Patterson about Montgomery and the new one readers. Hey guys, if you've been listening to this interview and you wanted to jump in with ideas of your own, then you may want to sign up for The Conversation, our weekly newsletter that dives into some of the topics that we raise on the show and other issues in the South. You can sign up for it at ReckonSouth.com newsletters. This is a sitcom, obviously, but that said, you know, you even in the pilot, you address a lot of really serious topics and things like that, um, whether, you know, Vietnam or civil rights movement or Black Panthers. As a sitcom, did you feel any internal or external pressure to kind of soften some of the, the edges? I mean, one moment that stuck out to me from the pilot, and this could be my own ignorance, but family received some bad news from a white couple. And the white couple seems as torn up about it as they did. And I, you know, I guess, I mean, surely there were people like that in Montgomery, but was that the norm in Montgomery for, for white Alabamians? You know, I certainly looked into that because like I said, at the end of the day, you know, these, these things have to ring true or an audience will not, will not embrace it and accept it, you know. And that particular moment that you're talking about, you know, and I'll speak to the comedy of it all after that, but that particular moment, you know, was important to me because um, that white couple did represent, I think, a percentage of America that often is not shown in that moment, in moments like that. Okay? Um, and it was important for me to show, I'll say good and bad, although you know, it doesn't have to be those extremes, because there were certainly white people in the pilot that represented what you would have expected white people to have a point of view of too. You know? Um, and, and, I, and I didn't want to overemphasize either of those sides. Um, but that, that, again, the moment that you're referencing, I think speaks more to our human condition, you know, that you hear a lot. It usually, unfortunately, it usually takes moments like that to cut through some of the things that we let divide us. And so, you know, that felt real, especially considering the setting of that scene and what had, had just happened, you know, with what Dean's goal was and everything. So it, 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 felt, it felt appropriate. It would have been inappropriate if everyone there had reacted that way. You know, I, I don't think that would have been accurate. But, you know, we certainly wanted to, to show that aspect of it as well. And then speaking to the, the fact that we are a half-hour comedy, but we're a half-hour comedy that's trying to tackle real moments, grounded moments, serious moments, you know, the decision we made earlier on was to always start with truth. And if we start with truth, then we have a strong foundation to stand on and to push back on when necessary. And to be honest, ABC was and still is very, um, I shouldn't say very, they were very concerned about it not being funny enough. You know, because 
as groundbreaking as the Wonder Years was when it came out, and as much as shows started to emulate it, we kind of moved away from that balance of comedy and drama um, on broadcast TV specifically. Cable TV has, has embraced it a lot more um, to great success, actually. And broadcast TV is trying to catch up. So, you know, ABC was just worried, like, where's it going to fit, you know, because they don't have anything like it on the air right now. And my response, my reaction was, you're welcome. It's good that you don't have anything like it on there right now. You know, that's what's going to make us stand out because an audience will, will see it as something that's, that's interesting and, and unique and refreshing. Now, mind you, it can't be a drama. You know, it, it does have to have humor. But um, I went out of my way and my creative partner, Fred Savage, who directed the pilot, staying on as a director as well. Also, we, we went out of our way to make sure that this did not feel like typical broadcast sitcom in terms of there's no mandatory joke count per page. I really policed it on myself with the pilot and I policed my writer's room with this. You know, the, the jokes can't sound written. The jokes can't sound like the character would have to forget he's a real person to actually say it, you know. So the humor has to come from what the humor in our memories come from, you know, real moments that surprised us in a funny way. And that's challenging, you know, and, and I, I break those rules as much as anybody. Sometimes it's a joke I love, I'm like, oh, that's, you know, he wouldn't have really said that, you know, because, he, you know, he's only saying it because I put the words in his mouth, you know, a real person would not have said it, or he wouldn't have said it in that way unless he was trying to make a joke. And he's not trying to make a joke, you know? So, you know, it's something that's challenging. Um, and ABC, I think, as they've seen the audience embrace it, have, they have come around themselves to understanding that this isn't something that they need to fear turning an audience away. And in fact, thing that they thought would be a liability is probably my prayer going to be an asset to the show and the audience will find it refreshing. And we will earn those funny moments by showing the real grounded moments around. Yeah, I imagine executives were, were confused when you said you wanted to set a sitcom in 1968 in, in, in Montgomery, Alabama, even in the pilot, these moments of dramatic tension also create moments of dramatic irony, which can lead to, to comedy, particularly the narration from Don Cheadle serving that same role that I guess it was Daniel Stern did in, in the original, I think. I can't remember. But you mentioned that the original Kevin Arnold, I guess your, your character's not named Kevin Arnold, but the original Kevin Arnold, Fred Savage is involved with the show. What was it like having him you know, work with you to, to bring this uh, back to life? You know, so Fred and I, I had the privilege, privilege of working with Fred, the pleasure of working with Fred on another pilot for ABC about three years ago, um, starring Leslie Odom Jr. Um, that we produced with Terry Washington, that, that we shot the pilot, it ended up not getting picked up the series, but it was still a well-received pilot, and Fred and I had a very good time working together. So when I was approached to come up with, like, a my own take on this or the reimagining of Wonder Years, first thing I asked, 20th and ABC was the first thing, first thing I asked 20th was, can I do this with Fred Savage? You know, and there's an obvious connection Fred has to the original. And he has certainly been invaluable to me and to us in terms of the protector of tone, the, the connective tissue we have to what the original did so well in terms of establishing a very unique feel and look and sound for, for the show at that time. And, and, and we want to do the same for this show at this time. And Fred also, you know, having lived it, you know, he's had to navigate some of those waters with, with the networks and studios in terms of they were doing something different at the time, and we are as well. But, but also just Fred understands the challenges that they had to overcome in terms of a show 
how you how you produce a show where the the twelve year old character isn't in every scene but can only work a fixed number of hours a day. You know that's a production challenge that we face every day. Fred has been invaluable in helping us solve that because he lived it and he knows what that's like. You know, and other shows don't have that same constraint. So that's you know the obvious reasons. But you know the if, even if this weren't the Wonder Years, I would have reached out to Fred to write this pilot and work with him again because he has established him, he has established himself as a as an excellent director in, in his own right. You know, creative sensibilities are very similar to mine. We are usually, if not always, on the same page. And if we're not, we we quickly get to the same page, you know, from talking things through. It's a great asset to have creatively. So, you know, couldn't imagine doing it with anyone else. I know the majority of the filming has taken place in Atlanta, I believe, set in Montgomery, but it, it looks like some filming is going to take place in Montgomery if not currently, but here soon, you know, what does that mean to you to be able to, to film in your hometown and kind of bring the film presence there? It was something that I made a priority earlier on, you know, we explored the possibility of filming the whole series in Montgomery, but whereas for a movie, you, you can kind of build a temporary infrastructure where you need it, you know, shoot kind of wherever you want. For TV, it's not as, it's not as simple as that. TV needs a locale that has logistically a built-in, you know, infrastructure to, to source things, source materials, source space, source crew and things like that, that Montgomery doesn't have yet. You know, Atlanta just has a head start on that. So it made more sense to the Disney company of it all, dollars and cents wise, to, to shoot it in Atlanta. But they were supportive of me creatively wanting to be able to shoot something in, in Montgomery. And, and, and we were able to carve out a production week where we go to Montgomery and shoot, you know, some things that are exterior so we can really benefit from the unique look and feel, but also wanting to do something that could you know, hopefully create a professional business, you know, partnership with Montgomery, help Montgomery establish some of that, you know, foundation infrastructure, you know, whether it be crew, locations, things like that, that could then help Montgomery eventually become a destination that you can go to for, for more production and things like that. When you were growing up in Montgomery, I mean, I know you went to MIT to study engineering. Was it on your radar that working in Hollywood and, and writing for a living was something that you could do? When did, when did that become a reality for you where you realized that you could do that instead of engineering? I didn't discover writing. I say to discover, not that it was unknown, but it was, it was unknown to me until I was in grad school. You know, growing up in Montgomery, at least for me, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of the industry side of entertainment. You know, I wasn't the, the type that was looking at the credits to figure out who did what and things like that, which, which is usually how you start discovering that there's this whole ecosystem of people that helped you bring something to the screen. So it wasn't until I was at Vanderbilt that I got interested in learning about television and how it works. And that's when I quickly learned about the role of writers in TV and writers as producers, and things like that. And so, that, so that's what opened my eyes to the industry as a potential career. Because again, unless you know someone or see someone who does it, it's not really something that you're aware of unless you have a specific interest. So, you know, thankfully, um, I was able to really just kind of dive in um, in grad school and, and learn as much as I could that kind of helped me understand what the next steps would be if I were to pursue entertainment as a career. And for me, that meant applying to fellowship programs. And I applied to, to ironically enough, things coming in full circle, the, the Disney Writing Fellowship Program. And that's what brought me to LA in uh, the mid-90s. You have worked on a number of TV shows. I'm curious about how, uh, you know, your childhood in the South and particularly your life as a Black Southerner has shaped your writing sensibility, whether on The Wonder Years or, or elsewhere in your career. 
I mean, you know, I think it's probably more obvious how it shaped it in terms of the Wonder Years. But, you know, as, as, as I've grown as a writer, you know, the old adage is certainly true. You write what you know. And as I've had experiences, both as a person, as a dad, you know, as a husband, you know, all those things contribute to my creative point of view. But, you know, growing up, in the, there aren't many of us who grew up in the South who, who have, have, made, have migrated out to Hollywood, per se. So that gives me a unique perspective that I think makes me a, a more interesting writer, a more interesting person to, to collaborate with, because I have, I have personal experiences that are different from the people around me. And so, so much of what we do is based on taking our own experiences and channeling them through other characters and things like that. So it certainly helps me in that, you know, I, I have something to offer that you can't necessarily get from somewhere else just because of my experiences growing up in the South and growing up black in the South. Great. Well, thank you so much. And people can check out The Wonder Years on ABC right now. Thank you, John. And that's our show, folks. Thank you to Saladin K. Patterson for taking the time to speak with us today. You can catch new episodes of The Wonder Years on Wednesday nights on ABC at 8.30, 7.30 Central and on demand on Hulu on the next day. Have you watched the new series? What did you think? What details do they get right about the South? And what questions are you left with at the end of the episode? Tweet them at me at, at John Hammontree or join the conversation in our weekly newsletter at ReckonSouth.com newsletter. The Reckon Interview is executive produced and hosted by me, John Hammontree, and it's edited by Kenny Codrington and the great team over at Edit Audio. If you're enjoying our show, please share it with your friends and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts so we can help spread the word. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with it.